Thanks so much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Jeannie Snelling about assisted dying. Welcome to the program. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I am uh, obviously a New Zealander, you'll have picked it up from my accent, but I'm an academic at Otago University, which is in the South Island, um, situated in Dunedin. Um, I've been working as an academic in, uh, across two positions. So I've got a joint position, one is a legal a lecturer in law, and the other 0.5, <coughs> I teach into the Bioethics Centre. So I'm... Um, a lawyer by training or an academic lawyer by training and um, I have an interest in bioethics but prior to doing my law uh, study I was actually a healthcare worker for about 10 years so I was a nurse working in intensive care um, in New Zealand and in London actually so I've got a background in health and that probably explains my interest in health law and um, technology relating to health. Right, so that leads me on to my next question, which is, what was it that inspired you to study assisted dying? Um, assisted dying is one of those topics that when you're a nurse or a lawyer or a bioethics student, it always comes up in discussion. It's one of those issues that attracts a lot of um, interest and a lot of debate and some disquiet. So I was aware of um, a lot of really strong academics that I admired having studied this topic and having studied it well. So I was aware of their arguments. But the thing that really got me interested in it was um, when we had a case in New Zealand taken by a woman called Lucretia Seals. So Lucretia was a woman in her 30s who was a really able lawyer who worked for the New Zealand um, um, law reform group. Our, um, Oh gosh, it's just escaped me. Anyway, she was working as a lawyer in an area looking at New Zealand law and what reforms we needed to make. And she actually ended up um, being diagnosed with a brain tumour. And she took exception to our current law in New Zealand that said that basically it was a crime for anyone to assist another person take their life. So we have a crime of assisted suicide. And she thought that that law shouldn't apply to her in the context of terminal illness making a um, an informed and competent decision to have physician-assisted dying. So she took a case through to the High Court in 2015, and it was when that litigation kicked off, um, and having to read that and having to explain it to law students was really um, what got me to, to look more closely at the arguments, to, to see whether I thought that our law should be reformed to permit this type of procedure in New Zealand. So exactly what is assisted dying? Um, in the context of assisted dying, there can be different versions of it, but what we're talking about, at least in terms of the law that we've just introduced in New Zealand, is um, access to help, generally by a doctor, to end a person's life, usually through um, either a lethal injection or taking drugs, and it can be permitted in varying situations. So in New Zealand, it's being permitted in the case of someone who is over 18, as a New Zealand resident, 
who is suffering from a terminal illness that's likely to end their life within six months. So they've got to sort of be at that very end stage of their life. Got to be suffering unbearably in a way that can't be alleviated in a way that's acceptable to the person. So it's, it's it, um, in this context, the important part is it's a decision by a person who's competent and able to make that decision for themselves. That's voluntary. Um, and in that, if they meet those sort of threshold standards, then they able, are able to go through a process whereby a doctor who helps them, if they comply with the law, won't be held to have breached the criminal law in providing that assistance. In which countries is assisted dying legal? Uh, various countries throughout the world. Uh, Europe has had uh, assisted, assisted dying in various forms in some of um, the European states, for example, Belgium, the Netherlands, Switzerland provides a service to foreign nationals. Uh, more recently, Canada has reformed their law so that uh, physician assisted dying uh, or medical assisted dying is available. Um, some states in the US, Oregon was one of the first states, they have um, quite a, a different approach there, but they, they had about 20 years experience of assisted dying in the state of Oregon. Victoria, you'll know, um, you know well, the state of Victoria has recently introduced legislation. So there's, you know, a smattering of jurisdictions around the world who, who permit it. So do most people support assisted dying? It depends where you go to look for information. If we look at our referendum in New Zealand, so our legislation was subject to a positive referendum in our last election, which meant that if more than 50% of people who voted, voted in favour of allowing the Act to come into force, um, then we would allow the legislation to be rolled out. So in New Zealand, we had at least in our election, over 60% of voters vote in favour of this um, act. So that suggests that there's a majority of people, at least who are voting, who are in favour of it. What's interesting is that when the act was going through our parliamentary process and through select committee, almost 90% of the submissions on the act were all very hostile and anti. So there is a strong segment of the community Community who are very opposed to this, but at least in terms of the referendum and in terms of public polling, the majority of people responding to those polls and voting the referendum support assisted dying in New Zealand, subject to legislative controls. Why do you think it is that people are so uh, opposed to it? I think the overriding fear is that there will be instances where people are coerced into making this decision that it might not be truly vulnerable, uh, voluntary, that, that these people are vulnerable at the end of life and that they may be pressured by family who aren't supportive or uh, pressured by their circumstances. So there is a concern of um, duress and undue influence, but that is something that uh, any legislation has to try and do something to, um, to navigate. There, there are some people who are opposed in terms of any type of procedure that might shorten someone's life. And um, that comes into tension a bit with other aspects of medical care where we do allow people who are autonomous to make decisions 
um, that will prematurely end their lives. So for example, if, um, if a person is um, paralyzed and on the ventilator, but they no longer want treatment, they have the option of saying, I, don't, I no longer want treatment and that ventilator can be uh, removed and they can be um, allowed to die. So we, we already have in our healthcare law precedent where the sanctity of life doesn't override individual autonomy. So um, some people struggle with that and they don't like to have any instance where their view of the sanctity of life should be undermined. So what type of regulations are there and, and how do they uh, differ from country to country? Um, the ways that they can differ, for example, would be on age of access. So for example, in New Zealand, Oregon, Victoria, you'd have to be over 18 and be competent to be able to access uh, assisted dying, whereas in Belgium, for example, they do actually allow uh, minors who are competent to access assisted dying. So generally, um, there's an age limit. Um, in some countries like us and in Victoria, there needs to be some kind of a condition. Um, in New Zealand and in Oregon, it needs to be a terminal illness, but in Victoria, it just needs to be an incurable condition that's likely to lead uh, in a person's life within six months. Um, so there can be variations on the threshold. In Belgium, the, the test for access is just unbearable suffering without prospect of cure. So that can be much broader. So the eligibility requirements are very important in terms of a legislative framework. And then on top of that, the law will generally set out the process that a person needs to go through and what kind of documentation has to be made to try and mitigate that risk that a person is being coerced or, and to try and mitigate the risk that a person might make a decision when they're not fully informed and aware of the options or alternatives. So process type safeguards and law and other sort of um, safeguards like reviewing decisions and having penalties for non-compliance with law, that they're the sort of things that you would expect to see in any regulation regarding um, end-of-life choice. What is the role of the Medical Council? So in um, New Zealand, our Medical Council has an obligation to set specific standards for the medical profession. Um, and so I think they may be one body that might be interested in providing some type of standard that applies in the context of assisted dying. Um, in our act, there is no sort of guidelines for implementation. So there's some sort of uh, gap, I guess, about who will be responsible for helping support doctors in the very early stages of doing this. I know in Victoria, they have in their legislation a requirement that um, there is a training program for doctors involved with this. We don't have that, so I think it's going to fall to our medical council or if not them, the other body that will be obvious for taking out the ball for sort of helping with the implementation rollout would be the Ministry of Health. They're, they're responsible <clears throat> for administering the Act and I think there is um, some scope for creating guidelines to help um, clinicians who are involved in this procedure to have some kind of consistent approach to standards. So even though we've got requirements in the Act, 
there's still sort of work to be done to support doctors who are um, applying the Act. Could you explain about objection and obligation? Hmm. So conscientious objection is a term that uh, emerged often in the context of war where we have pacifists who don't go, want to be involved in war and we also see it in terms of healthcare procedures that attract some kind of um, moral concern. So in terms of euthanasia, abortion, there's usually in law a provision that enables people who have a moral view that prevents them from feeling comfortable and in being involved in a procedure from, to, to actually object. So this uh, provision for conscientious objection is in our Act that we've introduced. So it enables uh, any doctor who has a patient who raises this issue with them to say that they have a conscientious objection to this procedure, but the Act will require that doctor to give that patient contact information of a group that will hold with them information about doctors who will be uh, willing and able to help that person um, process a request for assistance or at least to have that discussion with them. Um, so that's, that's the obligation that we put on people who are wanting to uh, have and raise and have respected their conscientious objection to the procedure. They, they have the ability to object, but there is still a minimum obligation of what they need to do in terms of how they manage that objection with the patient. Yeah, that, that seems fair enough, really. Um, look, over the years, I've, I've had lots of pets, and when their quality of life just deteriorates, and, and especially when they're in pain, I take them to the vet and have them put to sleep because I don't want to see them suffer. Um, so I suppose it's just the same sort of thing for people, isn't it? Um, I think there's a, a really important difference in what we're talking about with dying and that with pets, we're making a decision about the value of their life objectively. With people who want to access this procedure, they're making a decision based on what their views of value are. So they're accessing it voluntarily, they're making a decision to live the end of their life consistent with their values, whereas when we have pets, we're making a decision on their behalf about what we think is valuable about their life. So even though your choice about your pet's life might be driven by your view of quality of life versus the quantity of life, um, the big difference with physician-assisted dying in this context is that people are making the decision themselves. No one else is telling them, you know, we wouldn't treat a dog like this, therefore you must decide that you won't be treated and you won't exist in the state. Because some people uh, will put up with enormous amount of suffering because of the value that they place on continued life. Yeah, that's right. So. What is compliance and review? Uh, so in, in our law, we have lots of stages where whenever a patient uh, starts off the process and, for example, makes a request, there needs to be paperwork submitted to our registrar for assisted dying. And all of the paperwork needs to be in place that um, the provisions in the Act regarding the obligations on the doctor, for example, to provide information, talk to them about alternatives, uh, 
discuss things with their family members should they want to. All of those things have got to be recorded and submitted to a registrar. And there's many, many processes and steps that have to be complied with before a person can be given um, a notice of compliance, basically, to say that they can actually conduct the procedure, which will either be um, taking drugs to end their life or electing to have uh, an injection given by a doctor. So that's the compliance, is the steps set out in the Act that have got to be complied with and there's got to be evidence of that compliance before the procedure could be conducted. Um, so there's a whole lot of paperwork, obviously, that is accumulated over the course of someone's first raising this issue and the event actually taking place. And the registrar is, um, has the responsibility of making sure all of those compliance points are met. And then at the end, we also have a review committee who will, even once those stages have been sort of ticked off by the registrar, there'll be a review committee that again looks over all of those reports to, to make sure that this other neutral body, which has to contain um, someone who is uh, a specialist in palliative care who has worked in this type of area before, they have to review all of those reports, uh, assisted dying reports, to make sure that they're satisfied that the law has been complied with. And if, if, if there's any concerns, then they have to flick those back to the registrar who then has to deal with them appropriately and either you know, should it be a matter for uh, the medical council or for our patient health and disability system, or um, even if in the rare case there may be some concern around criminality, then they would refer to the police. So that's the difference between compliance and review. All are aimed at the same thing of making sure that it is monitored quite closely to try and mitigate the concerns that people have about um, doctors perhaps um, being pressured by families or people being pressured themselves by families or um, just making sure that all the information has been provided to patients that they are entitled to. In the countries where assisted dying is legal, um, have there been any unforeseen problems? I don't think that they're necessarily unforeseen. I think a lot of the risks and concerns around end-of-life care are well documented. But what I do think has happened in some um, cases, um, there have been concerns in the media, often it's, you know, it's, it's interested journalists or particular people who go and try and seek out information. There has been concerns that sometimes people have been allowed to access euthanasia and they may not have actually been fully competent, they may not have met that criteria of, of actually being able to understand the nature and quality of the decision that they're making. And um, there's been concerns in some places that not all of the cases that have been um, completed have actually been reported. So in some countries there has been concerns around compliance and oversight that some of that has actually been a bit loose. But, you know, in some countries, for example, in Oregon, the state, the US state, they have um, no specific oversight, but they also have quite a different approach to this um, procedure. They just give a patient a prescription who has the choice to fill out that prescription or not. There's no, there's no case of the doctor actually 
physically delivering an injection. So in Oregon, there is no oversight, but they have a very um, much more conservative approach, whereas in other places, they will have doctors performing um, a lethal injection. And so in that case, there is variations in what is required and in terms of compliance and reporting. But if you don't have proper reporting, then you can't monitor properly. Yeah, it's interesting. There was a case um, a while ago of a man who was, I think he was 101, and he actually travelled to another country so he could access assisted dying. And there was a bit of a uh, dispute about how competent he was. And I, I saw him interviewed and he, he seemed perfectly competent to me. So is that, is that sort of a difficult thing to sort of judge whether somebody's competent or not? I think uh, what, what we do see is that um, this is one of the, the most enduring concerns is how competent you need to be to make this decision. Um, some people are concerned that people at the end of their life are going to be, particularly if they're suffering and in pain, that they're going to be depressed and that may affect their ability to make competent decisions. Um, I think people can be depressed but still be quite um, able to logic through uh, what their options are and what they value at that time. In our Act, we have um, a requirement that two doctors assess the patient and agree or don't agree that that person's competent. And if there's any um, disagreement, they have to then have a psychiatrist assess the person. So they end up having a third opinion about whether the person's competent or not. Um, yeah, I think you can find sometimes, depending on whether someone supports the decision or doesn't, will affect whether they think that person, I'm talking more about third parties, not clinicians. But if, if you had a family member who was really opposed to a person taking this option, you could imagine that they might more easily raise a concern about competence than if they were actually supporting the person. So I think um, the importance about assessing capacity is that it's done by sort of a neutral, objective body. But of course, they need to take a very holistic approach about um, how that person is functioning cognitively. So um, could you tell us about the legal situation in New Zealand and uh, mm. how, how the law sort of stands now? So at the moment we have um, just had our elections and we had an act that was introduced in Parliament by um, private members. So it wasn't a government bill, it was a bill introduced by David Seymour who sort of took this on after the Lucretia Seals um, case when she was unsuccessful in getting the ruling from the court that she wanted. So we had this law, but it was subject to a referendum and it's um, by a majority of about 65%, I think, New Zealanders who were voting supported the introduction of the Act. So that Act will come into a force um, next November. So we've got basically a year to get the, um, the bodies that are required to be created under the Act established. So in a year's time, we will have the capacity for people to access this if they fit the, re the eligibility requirements of the Act. 
Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? Um, no, I just I think probably we will be looking to Victoria a bit to um, to see what their experience has been of it. Our Act probably doesn't have quite as many safeguards as the Victorian legislation, and there are some things I think we could have helpfully um, adopted that were done in the Victorian Act, but. Um, we do have a provision in our act that says it needs to be reviewed in three years. So it'll, it'll just be very interesting to see how the next three years go and what the experience is and be able to compare that, I think, with the Victorian experience. Do you have any future study plans within this field? Um, no, but I, I have um, a lot of colleagues who are doing some empirical work in this area and um, yeah, I'm looking at the research with interest. All right, what type of research is that? Um, I've got one colleague in the Bioethics Centre who has been going, she's um, doing a PhD and she's been interviewing doctors in Canada about their experiences of providing this as a service because there's been a lot of concern about what the effects of this will be on doctors. You know, a lot of doctors feel that they should be preserving and prolonging life and that taking a life isn't consistent with what they think um, their values as a professional are. So she's, she's been doing some interviews with people who, who have been providing um, assisted dying since they introduced their act just a few years ago in Canada. So that, that's really valuable insights for us. And um, another person who has just finished her PhD actually interviewing people who are at um, the end of their life suffering from terminal illness, what their views were in terms of this act. So now that we've got it, there'll be some um, rich research, I think, being accumulated on people's experiences of having um, the option or family members who have seen a family member take this option or not have access to this option. Really good. So thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thanks, it's been a pleasure. And I've been speaking with Dr. Jeannie Snelling about assisted dying. That's all we have time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the program and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway. <laughs>